Hello and welcome to this episode of Pakistanomy. I am Uzair Yunus. In this episode, I spoke with Kalsum Lakhani about what made her bet big on Pakistan, how Pakistan's startup ecosystem has evolved over the years, and policy recommendations she has for taking this ecosystem to the next level. Kalsum is the founder and CEO of Invest to Innovate, an organization that has been helping shape and grow Pakistan's startup ecosystem since 2011. She has over 10 years of experience in the startup industry and has worked extensively both within and outside Pakistan. Thank you for tuning in and hope you enjoy this discussion. Welcome to the show Kalsum. Hi, thanks for having me. So let's start with the fact that you started Invest to Innovate back in 2011 which at that point in time forget about startup ecosystem in Pakistan most people were not even bullish on Pakistan as a whole and its direction and trajectory. So start let's start by you telling us a bit more about why did you uh, dive into the startup ecosystem in Pakistan back in 2011 and uh, what's the journey been like? Yeah, I mean I think saying diving into the startup ecosystem is a very uh lax term for what existed back in 2011 <laughs> there really wasn't much happening of course there was efforts by players like Basha and all of that in the awards and competition space but um i think i was more just excited less about the ecosystem because it didn't there wasn't much happening at the time and more about the potential that i felt was very um untapped and um i recently did this talk uh where i was and i i did we do this thing with our entrepreneurs in Pakistan where we come up with our personal why statements and my personal mm-hmm. why statement is i'm i'm deeply passionate but i'm also um i guess i'm deeply passionate about writing the injustice and the for me the gravest injustice is potential that is unleashed and i think pakistan to me in a nutshell when we look at the history of the country is potential that is unleashed right and so um having you know grown up there but i was i was working uh i was working on things related to pakistan for a number of years before i launched invest to innovate and when i was working i was getting introduced to the impact investment space in the venture philanthropy space and in entrepreneurship and all of the things I was going to all the conferences and paying attention to everything and I'm I'm kind of like a horse with blinders on when I get excited about something <laughs> so I just start learning and getting you know wanting to talk and listen to everything that's on it and I just kept noticing over and over again and this was back in maybe 2010 at the time or 2009 um that just everyone was focused on the same markets like everyone was focused if they were looking at emerging markets it was Mexico India Brazil and um East Africa and it's still mm-hmm. to a certain degree still very true right now um maybe add sub-Saharan Africa and West Africa at this point and maybe a little bit of Southeast Asia but at the time this was now what almost 10 more than 10 years ago that was it that was everyone's focus international everyone was still like looking at the same markets it was very self-aggrandizing which still continues to this day everyone was investing in the same places investing in very similar entrepreneurs and no one was looking at frontier markets and mm-hmm. having grown up in a place like Pakistan as well as like having traveled to other markets that were similar to that i just saw potential over and over again in the young entrepreneurs that i was meeting and then realizing that that was such a grave injustice that like people weren't even paying attention to those places but if you don't mm-hmm. invest in those places we're never going to unleash that in that potential and so that was really the impetus behind me launching invest to innovate it wasn't because i saw 
which is to the, to a certain degree the case now is that people see opportunities in the startup ecosystem, but back then there really wasn't that much happening. For me, I just saw the potential in the people and the human beings that I was meeting and, and realizing that, you know, rather than just talk about what we could do, I just wanted to start something and, and just, and just dive mm -hmm. deep. So, you know, you did that and, and at that point in time, even if I recall, this ecosystem wasn't really there, it was in very, very early stages. Yeah. So what was that experience like when you decided to take the plunge and say, okay, I'm going to do this? What were some of the things that you were like, you woke up in the middle of the night and say, whoa, I was never prepared for experiencing <laughs> this or being All wowed by some other potential? <laughs> like what were like two or three things that, you know, surprised you in bad ways, but also in good ways? Because, you know, a yeah. lot of times... We tend to get stuck as Pakistanis in the negativity, but there are good surprises too, right? So share yeah, share a bit yeah. about what it was like. Um, yeah, and I think what most people will say that have known me for so long in the ecosystem is that I'm probably a hopeless optimist um, about Pakistan, <laughs> which is probably the reason you can work there for so long and still be so, still be so optimistic. And for me, that's I'm forever an optimist. And so, um, yeah, so for me, I think, I mean, there were so many things that, you don't know and, and don't realize. Like I had never professionally really worked in Pakistan until I started eye to eye. Like I'd done, we'd mm -hmm. done some funding and venture philanthropy and I'd done some work in the country, but I had never operated. I never had never been an operator on the market the way that um, I had become. And, and I think for me, it was a little bit, I mean, it was very much a culture shock in a lot of ways of realizing um how, first of all, I mean, just how many assumptions I had made in my head and thought were true. And it took me launching eye to eye. Like I, I basically, before I launched eye to eye, I think I spent about a year sitting in, sitting in DC, going to Pakistan a couple of times, but really sitting mm -hmm. in, in Washington, DC and chatting to different people around the investment space and getting feedback on my idea, but not really speaking to the end user who are ultimately the entrepreneurs and really asking them like, what is it that you would want to see? Um, and it's so ironic because that's very much the value and, and like the foundation of how I live my life now and what we teach our entrepreneurs. But at the time, I very much, I, the reason we are teaching it is because I lived that mistake. And I thought when we launched Eye to Eye in 2011, um, was, and by the way, we launched Eye to Eye before the amazing infamous Tahir Shah song, Eye to Eye, which <laughs> everyone now compares us to, but we came out two years before his song came out. Um, but do I have to say it for the record? Cause I'm sure everyone listening automatically. And I have to say it. like back in the day, <laughs> Eye to Eye was one of the most viral songs for various it's, reasons. To this day, but, people still yes. talk about it. So, I mean, that's, that's viral for you. It's, it's uh, going in my head I know. Um, but yeah, so when we started, I really thought I started out as a consulting company that wanted to support startups um, in Pakistan, starting in Pakistan, wanting to go um, to many markets right away. And then the first thing I realized is number one, startups can't afford to pay you for your consulting services. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a, and also like, you know, there isn't, if you haven't demonstrated value for what that service you're providing, why should someone pay for it? Right. Yeah. Um, these are all the tenants of what we teach our startups now, but these are things that I learned very much the hard way when I started. Um, the accelerator program that we launched in 2012 evolved from that because we realized, okay, like startups can't pay for this. Um, and also so many of them are facing the same problems. And if we really want to do this in a more magnified way, we need to be able to build it in a cohort way rather than me doing this one-to-one. -one. Um, 
Mm-hmm. The second thing of, you know, doing it in multiple places, you start in a country like Pakistan and you realize how much more value we could provide by going deep into one ecosystem than going wide to many. And so mm-hmm. making the making the decision is 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 was to go deep, right? And to really entrench ourselves in Pakistan and to really build and, sh- and, and build a reputation over time. And I don't think I realized, I mean, there were so many things that I wish I knew when I started, but those were probably the two main things is that how much more value you could provide by going deep. And then also by really listening to who your end user is, your, your model automatically starts to evolve. And I think some of the best mm-hmm. entrepreneurs that I meet are the ones that are able to come up with creative solutions on the fly when they realize that the assumptions that they made were completely wrong. And so mm-hmm. that was, you know, that was a big, uh, big dose of humility for me uh, was this amazing idea that I had in my head that was validated by all these people sitting in their ivory towers in Washington, D.C. was not the case when I was <laughs> on the ground in Pakistan. Yeah. And hindsight's twenty twenty. That sounds very obvious right now, but this was nine years ago. There weren't a lot of people to talk to in the startup ecosystem at the time, you know? Mm-hmm. So now I have so many people that come to me when they're wanting to launch something in Pakistan. There's reports that we've done and things that you can read, but there wasn't anything back then. So yeah. um, you just learn the hard way by just trying and failing and testing and listening, I think is one of the biggest things that I learned mm-hmm. while I was on the ground. So you mentioned a couple of things. I, I want to get to the ecosystem report and I have some questions about that and the contents of that. But before I do that, I want to go back to something you mentioned in terms of teaching uh, uh, your startups certain tenets. And you know, obviously it's a four month accelerator program and I just want you to run the listeners through in terms of what do that, those four months look like and what is it that someone, an entrepreneur who joins the program and is part of a cohort, like what is it that they come out of it with? Um, and what are the scales? What are the things that you teach them that you know, add value and accelerate essentially their startup journey? Sure. And so I think it's also very important to zoom out for a second and to talk about the accelerator um, in light of the other things that we do at Ida Eye. So mm-hmm. obviously I'm a partner in Ida Eye Ventures, which is our venture capital fund. Um, we also have Insights, which is our research arm. You mentioned our ecosystem report that came out under um, under that arm and with that team that's led by uh, my very talented colleague, Umbreen. Um, and then mm-hmm. we also have our accelerator. And the reason I mentioned that is because all three of those things operate very symbiotic with each other. So the accelerator program itself is a four month, um, very intensive program. It doesn't occur in one city. That's sometimes very hard for people to digest and understand right away uh, because people see that part of our team is in Karachi, part of our team is in Asama. Then they're like, oh, you must be in an Islamabad-based program. And we're actually not. Mm -hmm. Um, Our program actually takes place in six weekends over four months. Um, across Pakistan. Um, And so the reason for that, we do one weekend up in the mountains, which is really our leadership development, community building retreat that happens. Um, We do two weekends in Karachi, two weekends in Lahore, one weekend in Islamabad. And there's reasons for that. So the very first reason is number one, um, our companies, it opens it up to companies from across the country to apply. It means you don't, because we're really an accelerator, which for those who don't know, um, I always say an incubator is kind of um, when an egg hatches into a chicken. So really from an idea into really a prototype. And then an accelerator is really the stage after that, which is basically um, a chick to a chicken. How do we take mm-hmm. something that's really very early, like generating, we always take companies that are generating revenue in the market, have some sort of prototype that's already been proven. And how do we grow and accelerate that? And that's really what the six weekends does. So not only does it open it up 
to companies from across the country to apply, which basically means that we're not forcing you to move for an idea to sit in a program mm-hmm. or a space in Karachi, as an example, when your operations are in Lahore. What we want to do is we're recognizing that you are operational. We don't want to interrupt that. We're taking you out over the weekends. Um, in different cities. And then the second reason is that, um, and you've probably seen this, Ozer, is that a lot of companies, when they start out, they're very much siloed in the city that they're from, right? If you're from Islamabad, you tend to, you know, be siloed in Islamabad, right? And it's hard and it's part of it's a mindset issue. Part of it is like just a lack of access and a lack of networks um, Mm -hmm. of people being able to think bigger than the city that they're in. So everyone will think bigger, but it's really hard to access that. So by virtue of our program being in all major cities, they're actually accessing mentor networks across all those major cities. So we actually give our companies access to about 50, over 50 mentors over the course of four months, right? And our curriculum is really grounded in the lean startup methodology. It's very practical. It's very much geared towards um, assumptions around the early adopters, customer research, uh, pricing, revenue generation, investment readiness, and really gearing them and getting them ready for investment. Um, And that really fits in really well with our fund because our fund can actually invest in the top companies that graduate from the program. So we're ultimately um, creating pipeline um, for this fund that invests very early stage as well. And then obviously the research arm plays a very strong role in actually supporting our companies through the program as they're doing a lot of this research and assumption testing and growth. Mm -hmm. And and so all the three arms, the reason I zoomed out was because they all three of them play a very strong role in terms of how they work together. Um, They're very, three very vital levers in this. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it, the, the ecosystems come a long way. And, and the report that I was looking at, the startup ecosystem report, which, by the way, is fantastic. Anyone who's listening wants to learn more about Pakistan startup ecosystem, obviously listen to this podcast, don't go away, but <laughs> download the report uh, by, by eye to eye as well, because it has some fantastic information in there. Uh, and the thing that sort of, you know, was reassuring for me to read and seen that was that in 2012, there were two major incubators, right? Right sure. around the time when I2I was sort of diving yeah. deep into the Pakistan ecosystem. And today there's about 24. I don't know the reports at 24. I'm guessing they've grown uh, by then as well. Um, but one of the things that struck out to me, uh, are two things actually. One was this point around the fact that donors are playing a big role. So 29% of funding uh, comes out of the donors. And my view is that, you know, ecosystems obviously need donor funding when they're getting started, but then they need to sustain themselves, mm-hmm. right, without grants and, and have a mechanism of fundraising and, and growing on its own. Sure. Um, where do you see Pakistan's ecosystem in that life cycle? Is it at a stage where donor funding is still very, very important in your view? Or are we moving towards a, an ecosystem that that can survive and thrive uh, without relying on donors to sort of fund the initial ventures that come out. Yeah, I would say yes and no, right? So I think that donor funding still plays a very, very important role um, in early stage funding. Um, I think we're seeing a lot of funding that's coming out of players like Garandaz, which is doing um, both investing as well as grant-related funding, specifically towards women-led companies as well as, well as to companies in the financial inclusion space. We've seen DFID play a role, um, uh, the Spring Accelerator. And we're also seeing, to be honest, I think the difficult part with grant-related funding is it can dry up, right? Especially mm-hmm. when foreign governments and their agendas or the way that things happen change. Um, sometimes funding is no longer there. But we've definitely seen like, you know, the U.S. Embassy, we've definitely seen like different embassies play it, uh, have a strong role in playing with grants. I think the strong 
issue with that is that um, a lot of times those grants come with caveats, right? Like there's no free money with grants. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes it comes with, um, you know, wanting a company to be, you know, to fund only a certain thing that they want to do that fits a box and checks a box for those for those grant funders. Yep. And that to me is a major challenge as someone who is a player in the venture capital space. Because when I'll see a company that has jumped from, and we'll oftentimes see companies beyond uh, grant funding, they'll also jump from award to award and go to competitions in order to be able to get some of that early, early money that they need in order to prove their model. What happens as well with that that becomes really dangerous is you start to see um, founders that um, jump from award to award and competition to a competition without actually fully executing on their business. And so, mm-hmm. um, so you'll see two things. Number one is you'll see a company where there's they've experienced mission drift because of the grant money that's come in and or we'll see them um, become kind of those like talkpreneurs rather than entrepreneurs in terms of actually just talking about what they do versus actually executing mm. on their work. And those two things mm. are major red flags and are very problematic for any venture capital funder or any investor that's really like looking at these companies because you want to see real execution. You want to see that the founders are laser focused. And while Grant funding still will play, I think, a continued role with that. My advice to players that are in the grant funding space, and these are conversations that I've definitely had with players um, in the space, is to not push uh, companies to fulfill their agenda and instead think about how grant funding should do what it's supposed to do, which is high risk, mm. no no reward funding, which is ultimately a very important part of the value chain uh, when it comes to the capital curve. Yeah, and I think that's very important, right? It's almost similar to, uh, you know, what you said as you started, um, that you were in Washington, D.C., and then you had to learn how to put the customer or the end user first, right? So in many ways, what I'm hearing from you is that grant funders also have to think about that and not just what is the criteria that they or the mission that they have or the boxes that they need to check to justify putting money on the table. Um, Speaking of funding, right, I mean, in Pakistan, some of the listeners may be aware, but many probably aren't. But, you know, the report mentions this as well, that there has been a growing number of angel investors. But the key thing that you highlighted was that quality is an issue. Um, And that quality is something that I have heard horror stories about. You have written (laughs) and talked about it, right? You've talked about the fact that there's a difference between vulture and venture capital in Pakistan. and so explain this phenomenon to the listener and and point out like how do how do young entrepreneurs who are thinking about starting their own company and getting started and learning more um, how do they stay away and recognize what a venture capital is mm. or a venture capitalist is versus a vulture capitalist and sure. and what are the tips that you would give them about this Sure. So, I mean, I think that the term vulture capital really comes from this idea. I mean, people call it like, you know, shark investors or people that want to take, basically, ultimately, when you see an investor that wants to take a majority share in a company, um, we've definitely, you've said you've heard horror stories. I would get phone calls on a regular basis from companies that were being offered term sheets that were egregious, right? It's just terrible. And when you would speak to those investors, they're like, well, I'm the first one that's taking a risk. And so I should be rewarded for that risk. And I'm like, yeah. And so define, define what egregious looks like in this situation. Sure. So you know, I, mean, I have an idea, but I want, I want yeah, you to I clarify. Mean, for what me, that. anything above, uh, I mean, anything above like 40% to me is crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're investing like 100K and above, there was an accelerator and I'm going to get in trouble for talking about it, but there was an accelerator in Pakistan that was offering – 
$10,000 for 20% equity in a company, which was, wow. it's, it's egregious. Like, I mean, I don't care how you spin it. And I've had conversations about this before where you try to spin it that like, oh, we're taking a risk early. And for me, I'm like, because mm -hmm. you're taking a risk early is even more of a reason why you should be taking a very small minority stake in that company because ultimately any investor that comes in early should be thinking about the future capital curve of that company, yep. right? They need to yep. be able to go on and raise yeah, after their pre-seed round, raise a seed, potentially pre-series A, series A, series B. Like you want to see that happen in the future. And if you as an investor have taken 20% and valued that company so low, um, yeah. no other investor will want to touch it. Right. And so even if an investor comes in and they offer a hundred K and they want to take 40% of the company, or if they want to take 60, I've seen 70, I've seen yeah. insane stuff happen. Right. Wow. And <laughs> the worst part is it's not that I see insane stuff offered. I see entrepreneurs who are smart people take those deals and I don't blame them because now I think there's a, I've been saying this to our founders. I was like, you guys are existing in a in a very privileged space right now. Like you're getting relatively good um, professionalized investors that are coming into the market. But when you see players um, and entrepreneurs from before, when you exist in an environment of scarcity, you don't know if there's going to be a better deal that's out there, right? Yeah. And so when you're faced with zero or nothing, like you know like this crappy deal or nothing, you're going to take the crappy deal because you don't mm -hmm. know what the future looks like for you. Right. And you just need to keep the lights on. And so, you know, it's, it's really easy to come from a place, place of privilege and tell an entrepreneur that no, 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 just wait it out when they have to yeah. worry about keeping the lights on and paying their, um, paying their, their team, making sure that they can cover their school fees for their kids. Right. Like I think that it comes from that place. And so we've seen really amazing companies die because of taking terms from really bad investors. And I think for me from, I, I mean, again, this speaks to this very, like, you know, this whole original why statement, I get very, uh, heated about injustice. And I feel like that was such, yeah. it's such a grave injustice that I would see over and over again. And so one thing my friend Mabarez and I did was we, we co-wrote, Mabarez is a really well-known lawyer in the startup space. He's actually now the general counsel for Sermayakar, um, who are mm -hmm. good buds, uh, another venture capital fund in the space. Um, and so Mabarez and I co-wrote a startup toolkit, which was like a one-on-one -on -one guide for founders on like how, what does it mean when you give away this much equity in your company? What does dilution mean? Yeah. Because a lot of people don't realize like 20% seems like a minority right now, but it's actually not in the future, right? Because of dilution. Mm -hmm. And so um, we started that and then it's it's still happening, right? So that was ultimately the reason my partner and I decided to launch iDi Ventures, our fund, because we didn't want to just mm -hmm. Um, complain about all of these things that were happening. We just felt that the best way to um, the best way to actually introduce better capital into the market was to be the better capital in the market. Mm -hmm. And so that's mm -hmm. that was one you know one real impetus behind why we launched our fund. Yeah, and I do I the, the venture fund is the first female founded uh, institutional fund investing in Pakistan, which is amazing. Um, it's great progress, right? Starting back in the day when there were only two incubators uh, to now having your own <laughs> venture fund is yeah. just fantastic progress. And and you mentioned the you know founders not having or recognizing how good they have them. I think that's very important uh, to point out because I had Mevish Arfin, whom you mm -hmm. know, uh, yep. doing great work, um, and we were. Yes. And, and, and I was talking to her and I was telling her that she's doing amazing work. And yes, there are problems and they're going through some growing pains and everyone else is as the ecosystem grows. But the important part is that you develop a community, you develop an ecosystem so that 
the next batch of companies and innovators and entrepreneurs that come in um, learn from that and build on that. They look yeah. at the startup toolkit and say, wait, Kalsum's already pointed out what we need to do. So let's not fall into the trap with the uh, vulture capitalists and, and build on top of each other as a community. Yeah. And obviously in any any society, any ecosystem, there are others who uh, look out for personal gain, right? And mm-hmm. in this instance, it's actually not even personal gain in my view because you're stunting the growth of the company. So your own sure. money is not going to grow as much as it can. Yeah. But I want to... <laughs> I want to I, I want to pivot to I2I Ventures and I right. just tell us a bit about what you you mentioned why you set it up and what the impetus was but what's the fund's philosophy and and what have you been uh, investing in and looking at in terms mm-hmm. of Pakistan's uh, ecosystem Sure. So my partner, Mispa, and I set up I Die Ventures. We opened our doors last year. We announced our first investment in August, our second investment in November. We'll inshallah be announcing our third really soon. Um, Congratulations. We, thank you. So we are a, uh, we're not yet, but we are planned to be a $15 million venture capital fund that's investing ultimately at the seed, really kind of at seed pre-series A, series A, but really with the focus on early, early stage investing. So oftentimes we'll be the first institutional check-in because Mm -hmm. of our accelerator, because of our research arm, we have the ability to not only build pipeline, but, you know, be able to identify, I mean, something that we've done so well over the last eight years is we're really good at picking founders. And that's ultimately Mm -hmm. when you're investing early stage, that's what matters. So we invest, um, you know, a lot of our investing will be happening at seed, though we will plan to do like ideally, uh, we will be doing a growth stage investment this year. And ideally, we'll be doing future investments where we can actually invest independently in companies that, you know, may not have gone through our program, but also doubling down into companies that we've invested in at the seed stage and want to get in on their series A. Um, but ultimately, what we believe in our philosophy is that we are a founder friendly early stage venture capital fund because we have an accelerator and a research arm, we believe, and we have the ability to and the experience to uh, roll up our sleeves and get our hands dirty because I think a lot of people when they're investing early in Pakistan don't realize how much work Mm -hmm. it is, right? And so by virtue of the relationships that we built over the last eight years, our very first investment um, was in a company that graduated from our batch two years ago. Um, our second isn't, but it's in a real, it's a, it's a very strong relationship with the founders that we built. Um, we really believe in working with great founders and by building mm-hmm. those relationships in Pakistan, which is such a relational market, um, relationships are really key for us. And so founder friendly comes into play so many times. And I think when we said founder friendly, we were just like, we're founder friendly in terms of our terms. And then we're like, wait, there's so much more to this, right? (laughs) Founder friendly means like how you source your investments. Founder friendly means how you make your investments. And then also founder friendly is how you actually get your hands dirty and help your companies grow in order for them to raise their future rounds in order for them to be successful. And so we really kind of bake that into our DNA of who we are as a fund, Mm -hmm. because that's who we are as an accelerator and as a research side as well. Um, we really believe in working side by side with our founders. We really believe in kind of um, leveling the playing field because too often and in, in every market, investor entrepreneur dynamics are very top down and we do not operate mm-hmm. that way. And that is not how we believe companies can be successful because we want to help build the next big success stories in the market. And we believe that the type of approach that we're taking will help do that. Yeah. And, and again, I think the founder friendly thing is is key, right? Particularly in a small space like Pakistan. And so uh, the follow up to that from my side is like, you know, you're looking at founders, you're looking at new interesting ideas that have potential and investing in them. For the person listening here and thinking about starting their own uh, venture 
and thinking about, you know, I would love Kulsum to invest in my company. Tell them a bit about what are the key things that you look for in founders that convince you to say, okay, I'm going to pick this company because this founder really excited me for X, Y, Z reasons uh, versus somebody else. What do you look for in, in those ideas, in those founders? Yeah, totally. Um so, I mean, I feel like the founders that I work with know why I love them. But like as an example, um, the number one thing that I probably look at uh, look for is something called grit. And grit is really the confluence of passion and determination. And you can see that in a founder pretty much right off the bat, right? It takes hmm. a couple of months, which is why putting them through the program is really great. It gives me and our team space to kind of see how they operate in a very intensive program. Um, we're not one of those programs where you just sit and hang out and like get photo ops with like different people. Yeah. We're very much like we're going to work you to the bone. And if you're not ready to work, you should not be part of this. So we really gauge work ethic. We really gauge that type of passion and determination. Um, I just gauge like, you know, what's the openness? What's their humility? What's their ability to take constructive criticism because in the program, yeah. as I mentioned, they get exposure to um, over 50 mentors. They're getting hit with criticism over and over again. And my favorite um, entrepreneurs are the ones that take it, absorb it. The one, you know, some of the criticism is, is not, you know, valuable, but some of it really is. It's some of it's really valid. And how, what do they take with it? And so the companies that I've seen, you know, grow the fastest and grow the most sometimes aren't even the companies that are the furthest along when they join the accelerator. So our, in this current batch, um, one of our top performing companies, I mean, we actually, all of them are amazing. So I feel bad if any of them are listening to this, I'm just going to point out to uh, actually, Plate One Hundred and One is also one. Please of them. do. Uh, I feel like now I'm like Sophie's. No, you have to pick. You have to pick your favorite child. I can't pick my favorite child, but <laughs> I will say that a really amazing company that I've I've really loved working with um, is a company called Wash Up, and they are an on demand for laundry based in Karachi, and they are you know, the barrier to entry in that market is extremely low. Anyone, there's like Dobi Aya now, there's like a ton of like different copycat ideas that have come out into the market. Washies was there before Wash Up started, but the barrier to scale is actually very high. And the reason why I believe that these founders are amazing is because these guys are like your true Garachi hustlers, right? Like these guys are the kids that like sit in their supply chain, understand every single thing about like uh, laundry, which is to me, sometimes the most like my eyes glaze over uh one of the co-founders Samara was explaining to me about chemicals and I was like he was so passionate about it and I was like I don't know what you're talking about dude but I'm so glad that you're so passionate about this and like um yeah they, about getting your hands dirty literally uh, in terms of like figuring all this stuff out my favorite Samara yes. story was that he didn't realize he was touching chemicals and was wondering why his hands were burning and he was like oh my god literally got his hands dirty um but I mean he's he's so amazing and both him and Abbas too like you just saw they were probably the earliest. And the reason I give them as an example, because I do really love all of the companies that were part of this batch. But the reason I give them as an example is because they were probably the earliest. They were generating revenue, but still pretty early in the market comparatively to some of our other companies. But I just watched them like double their revenue in four months, right? Because of the, the research insights wow. that our team was working with them on. I watched how they kind of went into their supply chain. They came up with a pilot of something and just decided to go with it and run with it. They took every single, every single mentor I threw at them, I'm like, hey guys, talk to this guy who's based in Dubai that knows why um, Washman in Dubai failed or is not, didn't do well right away and immediately got on yeah. the phone call with them, understood that, took that. Like 
it's really rare when you meet founders like that. And I think that this batch that we had was one of our strongest batches for that reason. Another example is mm -hmm. Plate 101, which is an on-demand marketplace for home cooks. Um, really mm. incredible husband and wife duo. Um, and just Zishan, when you meet him, like literally just absorbs information, right? Like just sat with, um, we give our companies a virtual CFO, like Omar, our virtual CFO was literally telling me, he's like, Zishan just sat with me for hours and just wanted to understand everything. <laughs> and that to me, those are such amazing signs, right? So yeah. even if our fund doesn't invest in them because it may not be a fit for our portfolio, we may have already invested in too many marketplace companies. Um, are I will sing their praises and and connect them and do any I will literally and these guys know this our, our founders know this about mm -hmm. me I will lay down my life for our founders like if you work at it and there there have been founders that haven't but if you really work for it I will do everything for you so um, yeah. they know that about like the type of blood sweat and tears I put into our companies and so they know that like if they put it in I will provide it for them as well yeah. Yeah, and it's a two-way street, right? If yeah. you're gonna grow, it's it, it's it's all about being on a two-way street. Um, I uh, you know, speaking of in terms of uh, growth and where Pakistan's ecosystem stands. Um, before I go into the comparative analysis and get your thoughts on where does how do you see Pakistan's ecosystem versus other countries you worked on? Um, tell us a bit about research and the insights uh, work that I two I is doing. And I I've experienced it. I know we worked a couple of years or so uh, back on a report together and uh, yeah. it was really hard to get data, right? And yeah. it's amazing to see I2I continuing to put out, really being the first and a leader in terms of putting out these insights and helping uh, not only Pakistanis, but outsiders understand what's going on in the market. So tell us about that experience and um, what uh, what headwinds have you faced in there? Because in Pakistan, particularly, data is hard to get. Reliable data is even get. harder to get. And also people um, don't value it, to be honest. And people don't value it. And, yeah. and others don't like to share data, right? Which <laughs> is like weird in the ecosystem when the goal is to grow. You all have to put data out there. So share us uh, something about that experience and what it's been oh, like to man. grow. I mean, those those, are, those are the headwinds in a nutshell, right? Is the lack of data, yeah. the lack of good data, and yeah, siloed data, and then also people just not seeing the value and wanting to pay for it. So, um, you know, what I think, what we realized is of a couple things. So when, so as I meant, so I think as I mentioned before, maybe not actually my my career background, my training initially is as a research analyst, and so. I am a big geek about research. Like I am a perfectionist. My team will tell tell you this. Um, the report that came out, I edited the hell out of that report. And like we all spent like poor, I mean, we worked, this was with the World Bank. And so we have their entire team to thank for the amount of work that they also put into it. Um, it was funded by WeFi, which is Women's Entrepreneurial Finance Initiative. Um, so much gratitude to the World Bank for the study that we put out. Um, but insights ultimately when we started really came from, for me, a love of research, right? Because I really feel that it is impossible to make a decision. I like I like to make a decision when I have as many things at my disposal, like when I'm able to look at the evidence and then make a decision. And I'm still extremely risk driven. Like I'm, um, I'm still the person that like will make a decision very, very quickly and will jump in, but I still like to know as many things before I make that decision. And when you operate in a market, in any of these markets, forget just Pakistan, I think this is a case for most frontier markets right now, there's just such a lack of information and that information asymmetry can be very debilitating. It can actually just heighten the risk and heighten the risk perception that people have when they're looking at the market for the first time. And so as, a as like a researcher and someone that loves to research 
research and to to get my hands dirty. Um, really, our research arm was born, to be honest, because of a 2014 study that we did back in the day. It was was funded by the World Bank again, but literally it was a conversation. Um, I'll give a shout out to Kabir Kumar, who's now at a Mediar, and he literally brought me into a room at the bank and he said, I just want to download that's everything that's in your head right now. And I never thought of that as valuable. <laughs> it was so interesting because I was like, oh yeah, because I can just talk about the ecosystem. I li- literally knew all the players. I was let's like, put is- a brain machine interface on your yeah, head and like, exactly. download all the let's, data. <laughs> let's download it because I always feel like I'm a little bit Rain Man-like when I talk about Boxman. <laughs> I can just like rattle off things because I just live it. I eat, breathe, and sleep the yeah. market, right? Um, and so that study made me kind of open my eyes to the rigor that was required for the type of research that was needed. And then realizing like at first when we started Insights, it was really with this desire that we wanted to create data. And then realizing really quickly with the headwinds that were there, we're like, okay, it's really hard to do that. So what do we have? What do we have in our arsenal? Um, we have the ability to work with so many companies. We know the companies that are here. We know the investors. We actually can, um, we have like amazing deal flow data and things that we can access more than other people can because if a McKinsey parachutes in and they came out with a study on Pakistan that was so-so, if you just parachute in as an as a consulting company, it is very difficult to understand a market like Pakistan versus mm-hmm. for us, our biggest thing that was in our ammo is that we understood the market because we were in the market. Like we understood it because we operated um, like our newsletter that comes out every month. It's like, we just covered the travel tech space. Right. And because travel is becoming such a big industry in Pakistan, we're like, let's dive into this. Like what's the ecosystem around e-ticketing and payments and how does all this work? Right. And we talked to like, um, the players from behind BookMe and Laxon who invested in them and like looked at the space as a whole. Um, but we started to move away from like, you know, this, we wanted to do it for the ecosystem because we were like, this is what everyone needs. And realizing that maybe because no one was willing to pay for it, we're like, maybe the ecosystem ecosystem doesn't see value as much as we do in yeah. this. Let's start putting out some reports that we feel are important, but then also let's double down and provide value to the companies that we're investing in, right? And so Insights is actually um, beyond the work that we put out, like we're putting out work that's for the ecosystem. And I think that's really important, but there's also incredible value that our research team can provide our portfolio companies. It can provide the companies that go through our accelerator. It can provide, you know, really very strong market research that helps and aids our own due diligence when we're looking at things that can help our funds make evidence-based decisions with um, things. And that's actually someone that something that no one else is doing in the market. So we're like, okay, Mm -hmm. this is actually, yeah, like I would love for someone for someone to pay us to do like a major data portal that exists, but because that's not happening anytime soon and we definitely hit our head against the wall trying to get people to do it, let's instead focus on what we already know and what we already have. And let's make sure that whatever we're creating, let's create as much value as possible. So this is, this is really ultimately where insights is moving towards. No, and I think that's great, right? Because it, it's an added advantage for you as an investor, but it's an advantage for the companies that you invest in or work together with because all of a sudden, um, you know, copycats is a f- great phenomenon in both Pakistan and other markets as well. And then they have an edge, right? They have a research in-house team um, that can go out and get them data that others can't have access to totally. um, or may not have the capabilities for. And that's really important to to have access to. So that's, that's amazing work. And again, the travel and tourism one just came out. 
Um, so listeners, if again, don't stop <laughs> listening, but go on and subscribe to that newsletter. I haven't read the travel one. I just looked at the infographic. And again, it looks like there's some amazing data and analysis yeah, there in there. there is some really good um, analysis. And that's a shout out to and, our, our insights team, um, Umbreen, who leads it, and Wartha, our associate. They did a really, really yeah. good job. And again, it's it's great. And the timing is perfect because Pakistan's tourism industry is coming back. And so there's a new, a whole new range of entrepreneurship opportunities opening up in that space. So that mm-hmm. data, um, even for budding entrepreneurs, can maybe inspire them and help them dive into this market as well. Um, so great job on, on that. Thank you. Um, so it, switching over to a bit of comparative analysis before I, I jump into the policy and get your thoughts on that. Um, you know, you worked in other markets and now you live, breathe and eat. Uh, Pakistan's uh, ecosystem, startup ecosystem. Mm-hmm. But tell us a bit about like your experience working elsewhere and then comparing it to Pakistan, both the good and as well as other things that you've seen abroad that you wish Pakistan's ecosystem had. And you're like, you know what, if we had one or two of these things from other ecosystems, mm-hmm. maybe Bangladesh and others, um, you know, we would be even better uh, compared mm-hmm. to where we are today. Yeah, I mean, I think, so I know Bangladesh relatively well. We're actually working on an ecosystem study for Bangladesh with our partners, LC Impact and Dhaka. Um, and so expect a more more deeper comparative analysis to come out on Pakistan and Bangladesh when that ecosystem study comes out. But um, I know Bangladesh quite well. My mom is actually Bangladeshi and I've spent a lot of time in the ecosystem uh, supporting incubators there. Actually, we worked with the Grameen Phone Accelerator with SD Asia. We've done work with... Um, LC Impact and Toru, and then now working with BYLC, which is an, an incubator that's, uh, it's been a leadership program for 10 or 15 years that's now launching an incubator. So been pretty, uh, I'm, I'm pretty aware of the ecosystem there. We most recently also did work in Cambodia and a few other markets, but um, Bangladesh mm-hmm. to me is the most exciting and most interesting comparison. And I think one thing that I've realized um, Last year in November, I uh, was part of I was part of I think nine program partners at the Australian government, so DFAT, um, which is their trade and aid association, mm-hmm. so similar to USAID here. Um, basically, brought nine program partners to train. I think like 19 incubators and accelerators from across Asia Pacific. And one thing that was the most interesting, I think I was the only. Uh, I was the only program partner that was in one of the countries that was being represented by the incubators and accelerators. And Mm. one thing that was really interesting for me, because it was uh, what ended up happening as a result of that week, it was like we ended up being uh, the incubators and accelerators got to choose who they wanted to continue working with at, at the end of the week. And what was very exciting for me was the realization that working in an early ecosystem like Pakistan, as much as there are differences there is so many things that are the same, um, exactly mm. the same, actually. And I think the sameness is what's what's really a travesty when we look at the the subcontinent right now that we're not speaking to each other. So when I'm in yeah. Bangladesh, as an example, I'm literally seeing the same startups, like the same startups. <laughs> um, so I've worked with Harper. You obviously interviewed Mevish. Yeah. I've worked with uh, WashUp, which is the on-demand for laundry. And then also Malka Online is our first investment is on-demand for temporary household help. Um, there is a company called Shahaj in, in Dhaka that is literally 
all three of those vertical, all of three of those are verticals within the same company. And I remember meeting him um, at Nanpai and I literally was just like, oh my gosh, like, this is so cool. I would have thought that was actually what I was thinking is that these companies should eventually merge. This would be so cool. And yeah. you're already doing it. And and then you meet like Patel, right? Which is like doing like on demand for food delivery. And like you, you're seeing basically versions of what you're seeing because the markets are so similar. Yeah. Um, and the needs are the same. The similar needs are the as similar. Well. The unit economics are the same same so when you actually look at mm-hmm. pakistan versus indonesia it's very similar right in terms of mm-hmm. unit economics wise you can actually see a lot that can be transferred knowledge wise um and so working working with Bangladesh, um I've worked with, worked in the Bangladeshi ecosystem off and on for the last five years, and have like tracked what's been happening there. Really good friends with people in the space there, um, and it helps, you know, in some ways, like having that half Bangladeshi thing. Because I think if you're coming in as a full Pakistani, sometimes maybe yeah. not the best. Um, so sometimes the singularity of being, it just opens up a bit more for you when you walk in. It does, yeah. And my whole family is yeah. in Dhaka. Like I, I mean, yeah. there is a singularity of being my generation half Pakistani, half Bangladeshi. I've never met anyone else my age besides my brother that and my sister that are like that. And so there is like a that are doors that are open open to you as well. But I think what's interesting is that that ecosystem probably started to develop um maybe a couple years after Pakistan did, right? There was a reason why the SD Asia guys asked me to come in to support them when they were launching the mm-hmm. their accelerator program. But I've actually seen Taka like like jump really fast and really because they had, you know, they don't have the curse of Pakistan of like being where we are like geopolitically, right? Like we've yeah. had, like there's this curse that we've had by where we are located in the world by, by that's, U S that, interests. Yeah. And that's so interesting. You bring that up because it's, it's, you know, now that I think about what you just said, like most Pakistanis talk about Pakistan's geostrategic location as a benefit and a key thing. And it's interesting you put it as a curse because I agree with you. Yeah. Um, in many ways, it has been a curse because yeah. that uh, that geostrategic location and the desire to extract rents out of it has had a negative impact on the economic trajectory and the totally. socioeconomic and, and political trajectory. And Atif Man talked about that on his podcast with you, right? Yeah. I think as well, yeah. which was like a great interview. Um, and I, I mean, I remember, I, yeah, I remember listening to it being like, yes, yes, so true. Because from, a, I agree on the rent seeking side because it's actually created this handout culture in Pakistan, right? When we think about how we constantly, what he was talking about or what you guys were talking about is like, instead of actually thinking about what can we do internally to avoid being like reliant on a, outside powers, we just keep doubling yeah. down on it, right? And Bangladesh, it's not that Bangladesh doesn't have that, but because they haven't been in this geopolitical space as much as Pakistan has, they've actually, like when you're a venture capitalist, like you have 500 startups investing in Bangladesh, right? Which was a lot mm-hmm. of the early investments that were happening in their startup space. You have like, um, geopo- uh, like what's I saying? Strategically, they're actually located very, very close, much closer than we are to Southeast Asia. So you have a lot of Southeast yeah. Asia investors. Um, I know that the guys from Fatal, which is um, you know, one of their top performing companies right now, a lot of the guys were learning from, and I think they had an investor that was from Indonesia, right? And so there's a lot that's like, um, just by virtue of where they are, they've been able to grow really fast. But then Pakistan, what we also have at the same time is that at the same time, Pakistan, what we have is we have an ecosystem that's become more spread out, right? So Bangladesh, hmm. the ecosystem is still, you know, while you'll see things happening in Chittagong and, and whatever, most of it is still very concentrated in Taka, which is a good and bad thing. So the good thing is 
everything and all the players are all in one city. So in Pakistan, that can mean that we can get very siloed of things happening in Islamabad, Karachi, yeah. Lahore. But it's also a benefit because our market is very large. Um, mm-hmm. You can, even though Pakistan is like the fifth largest market in the world, our addressable market is still a lot smaller. But even being smaller than the 220 million, we're still bigger than what, what the Middle East the entire Middle East market has to offer, right? So we actually have like a big fully addressable market that we can really hit in comparison. And we also have multiple cities, which can be a challenge, but also at the same time means that we've seen startups come up in all of those cities, right? And we can also see the opportunity for startups to scale. Um, It's the same in Cambodia, like um, in, you know, my work there has been with the amazing people at Impact Hub Phnom Penh. Um, there's also she investments, which is an amazing organization there too. I haven't had the chance to work with them, but I knew them from Singapore and they are all kind of based in Phnom Penh. Um, though she, I think does work elsewhere in Cambodia. Impact Hub is now trying to do work outside of Phnom Penh as well, but most of the work in Cambodia is happening in the capital city. Um, in Vietnam, it's a little bit more spread out. And I think Vietnam has seen a lot more outside investors rather than more of an indigenous ecosystem. And in Pakistan, Mm. Because we have again the curse of being Pakistan, a lot of a lot of foreigners don't move to Pakistan to start companies, um, to start yeah. a startup. So what we've had, what we've built, has been a very indigenous ecosystem. It's been a Pakistani ecosystem by Pakistanis, and I think there's also real yeah. value to that. So I can kind of you know as I can wax poetic about the region as a whole for a really long time, as you can hear, because I've been working across the board now for a while. Like I learned a lot, actually even going to Nepal two years ago now as well, is that Mm -hmm. Nepal to me is like fascinating in terms of how similar it is and how how similar the companies are, but it's extremely, extremely small. And if a company needs to grow, they have to quickly scale out of Nepal. And for me, I think the biggest travesty is that Sark is such a, crappy regional i mean we aren't cooperating as a region right so yeah. sark is yeah. defunct and so bangladesh is you can't get a, a visa as a pakistani to go to bangladesh you can't to go to nepal it costs you more to go from pakistan to nepal than it is from pakistan to dubai because you can't fly over yeah. india so there's all these things that prevent us as a region from being able to scale across the region um, and yet there's so much opportunity and there's so many things that are so similar and that, that sameness should allow for that type of scale. Yeah. Um, it's just unfortunate right now that it's not happening. Yeah, and I think a lot of Pakistanis sort of missed that point, right? I mean, geographically, I'm a bit of a geography and history buff. So when I look at history and the subcontinent's geography, trade has always occurred in an east-west longitudinal pattern, right? Yeah. It's not that trade flowed, you know, north-south, like Pakistan is dependent on north-south trade for energy and the Chinese. Um, but essentially, the subcontinent's richest hist- uh, period in history um, came when Chittagong to Tehran were connected mm-hmm. in many ways and Kabul mm-hmm. to Calcutta was connected, right? And and until and unless that happens, um, the whole region in, in many ways will be constrained in terms of what it can achieve. Uh, and, and one can only hope that things improve in the future so that not only startups can start cooperating, but cross-border trade flows uh, improve. Because at the end of the day, if you look at the world, you look at the European Union, you look at North mm-hmm. America with Mexico, Canada, and the United States, you look at ASEAN, um, the bulk of the trade and the development occurs in these regions because of cross-border cooperation yeah. and trade, right? And Pakistan sort of misses uh, because of the the burden of history and partition and what have you, um, has missed uh, that opportunity, as has the rest of the region. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
but but something that that's very interesting you mentioned i mean thank you for listening to the art of me interview but one of the things i've noticed uh concurrent recurrently in 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 all my interviews is that there has been this view that pakistani policy makers are sort of uh resistant to common sense policies um atif mia talked about it as decision making mevish was on the show she talked about it in terms of her own experience and the headwinds they face as a as a startup yeah. um bilal moon talked about it in terms of financial markets and things like digital payments which obviously affect the startup ecosystem and your report on the ecosystem had this interesting quote as well where it talked about quote unfriendliness of the current policy and regulatory environment end quote so i want you to talk a bit about you know wh- why is the current environment in pakistan not favorable to entrepreneurs and do you see an improvement happening or it's more of the same uh, for, uh, over the last few months i mean there's a new social media legislation that just went in today <laughs> i haven't yes. really read it yet but i know that it's going to be very damning for the ecosystem as yeah well. and even dad was on tv yesterday i watched a bit of her interview she's awesome and she was talking about yeah, this yeah so is amazing yeah, yeah you should have her yeah. on your show she's awesome and so yeah That's she's great recommendation <laughs> yeah but i mean that that in itself right like these are the nonsensical legislations that we put into place because we're i don't know we operate from a I literally think we operate from a mindset of a fixed mindset rather than a growth mindset. We're not thinking about the future growth of this country. We're mm-hmm. thinking about how do we how do we like hoard and keep all the spoils for ourselves and not allow anybody else to be, you know, and it all comes from a place of fear, from scarcity. And I, I just yeah. feel it just makes me so angry to be honest with you, is there because I think people are like, oh, you know, when I was speaking about the report, I was um I was at this talk in Texas, actually. It was like with the U.S. Pakistan Women's Council, and there was someone from USAID in the audience, and he's like, well, Pakistan actually improved by 22 spots. And I was like, we're still <laughs> 101 out of, like, what, yeah. 170 countries? Like, can we just, like... I get we should celebrate. And I always, this is, I think God, I've talked about this as well. I, we should celebrate the fact that we improve slightly, but I was like, can we not like be self-aggrandizing right now? There's yeah. so many things that we need to improve. And the, the state bank just upgraded or increased the remittance limit for freelancers <laughs> from five to 25,000 and everyone's celebrating. And my I view know, is like, like, what does the state bank's business? Exactly. Yeah. Like, why is the state bank in the business of regulating what someone through their hard-earned money brings into the exactly. country? In fact, for a country that needs US dollars, you shouldn't have a limit. You shouldn't care about where the money's coming from as long as dollar denominated. Exactly. But there we are. Yeah. Exactly. And it's 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 really upsetting to me because I feel like um I remember I think I was tweeting one time about the economy. Um, something I forgot. I think it was probably uh probably like a New York Times piece that like someone like Atif Man probably wrote. And I think I was writing, I was just tweeting about it because I was like, this is so important. People need to know that this is if people aren't realizing that the economy is failing right now, what are we doing? And people were like writing these vitriolic, like terrible tweets, like that, oh, you're so anti-Pakistani. And okay. yeah. and I think that's the problem is that we Which is the which is the irony, right? For someone irony. who's investing money in <laughs> Pakistan and trying to help it grow is being called out for being anti-Pakistan like getting lipapas I guess I I think that's the thing it's like we attach our our virtue of patriotism is attached to not questioning authority right and we have this deep psychological sense of like authority as being the end-all be-all and we we attach a sense of not questioning not 
um, you know, not challenging. And by by not doing that, we're not allowing ourselves to progress and be better, right? And I think from the perspective of like, you know, yes, like, okay, great. Like, let's, yes, let's applaud the state bank so that they feel great that they did something small that got us 22 points above where we were supposed to be. But yeah. let's also talk about the fact that actually we could be we could be like 60 points up right now if we yeah. just made these small incremental changes that take actually no legislation, doesn't take millions of dollars, but it actually requires us admitting we were wrong in the first place, right? So yeah. in order for the state bank to change some of the legislation that's been in place, I mean, this is maybe not the new state bank, um, the new head of the state bank, but the former one would have meant that he would have had to admit that he was wrong about the initial legislation that he wrote in the first And they don't want to admit that we they were wrong. Right. We do not admit that we were wrong. And so I just find it crazy. So, I mean, right now I can, you know, with our fund as an example, I mean, Mispa and I have, I think we have a gazillion more white hairs because of dealing with the realization, like we raised, um, we're basically, we're, we're operating our first close right now that partly is being supported by the Dutch government, but we also raised matching capital from high net worth individuals for the first close. Mm -hmm. And everyone in Pakistan will talk about the liquidity in Pakistan. There's so much liquidity here. There's so much money in Pakistan. The problem is, is that number one, the private funds legislation for Pakistan doesn't make it easy for you to set up. This is one from 2015. Doesn't allow it doesn't make it easy to set up your or to to get a license. Fine, getting a license not as hard. Running a fund in Pakistan extremely onerous and hard if you are a small fund. So mm -hmm. um, because and the one reason is because the legislation is really more of an iteration of the mutual funds legislation, and no venture capital fund should operate like a mutual fund with the kind of rules yeah. that are attached to it. Right. So most most VC funds operating in Pakistan, almost all of us, except for maybe one, I'm going to say two now, there's a second license that's out, but Laxon is the most obvious one. Um, that's the only one that has the local license. Every single one of us has had to domicile outside of Pakistan. So that's the mm -hmm. reality. And then for all of us to talk about the liquidity in the market, none of us can actually leverage said liquidity because we can't get money out of the country because the government yeah. does not want dollars to leave the country, even if those that money is going to come back to the country. Um, and so trying to explain this to people is the most like gives you the biggest headache I can <laughs> tell you <Yeah>. ever <laughs> trying to come up with loopholes, trying to figure out like, how do we explain that this is the case? It's like, it just made, meant that we literally had to leave money on the table. Like we had raised yeah. money from Pakistanis and Pakistan people that wanted, like we're literally begging to give us money because we're like, we want to invest. We don't want to be the ones to like do all the work. We want to give it to you. And we're yeah. like, we can't do anything with your money. Like we can't get it out. So we can't, you know, there's no solution here, which means that we all, all had to raise money from outside the country, which is an extremely small pool for, I mean, Forget, I mean, no one is, barely anyone looks at Pakistan seriously right now. And then all of us are competing for the same pool of money for the people that are. And so yeah. um, it just means that we're creating like this environment of all of us as VC funds when we should be collaborating in this early stage space of all of us competing for small pools of money. And so it's just, I mean, that to me is like the best example of just very badly thought out legislation yeah. policy like ultimately you're stunting the future of your innovation and entrepreneurship space because you're not allowing money to flow in and out easily mm -hmm. and not allowing mm -hmm. funds to operate without like a lot of big headaches that they'd have to go through yeah and a lot of the logic is so upside down right because like 
if you look at, you know, the policy statement is we want to attract foreign investment and foreigners to come in and invest in Pakistan. Well, if a foreigner comes in and invests in Pakistan, what happens from a successful business? It has profits. Yeah. Profits need to be repatriated out for the investor to realize certain gains or even like be confident of the fact that their money is not going to get stuck in that country. Yeah. So if you if you restrict that, why would anyone invest? Number one. Number two, it's like, you know, you want to formalize the economy and say we want more uh, people to enter the formal sector of the economy, but then you don't have a digital payments interface for years and years on end. And then you complain that people are not transacting and documenting their economy. And it's like, well, it's not rocket science to have a payments interface that boosts digital payments. Can you please get started on that? And you're absolutely right that, you know, you need, there are so many easy things um, that can be done that are very common sense policies that are not enacted for whatever rhyme or reason. And it's it's like, you know, the criticism uh, that one gets for pointing these things out is just absurd. And I realize that Pakistan's economy has a lot of issues. Um, it has significant uh, problems structurally um, that have built up over the years. And no one's saying, you know, clap your hands and it's going to be fixed tomorrow, but at least start doing the easy stuff first and build momentum. But that for some rhyme or reason does not, does not happen. So I'm going to put you in on the spot with this one. Okay. Um, and I did that with Atif Mia as well. So imagine you are the czar, you are the venture capital czar <laughs> in Pakistan. And the prime minister is like, consume, tell me two or three things that I need to do to make your life easier. And, you know, maybe even make Pakistan have its own unicorn in the next five years or so. What are those things that you would do? Oh my gosh. Uh, number one, uh, change the private funds legislation. Um, make it really, really easy for uh, funds to set up, make it less onerous for funds that are setting up to um, make it cheap and easy, but also make it really easy for them to run their funds because then people will set up in Pakistan, right? But then the number two thing is that make it easy for money to flow in and out of the country, right? So make it easy for like, if an if an, if a company in Pakistan wants to set up their entity in Singapore to raise their series A, um, allow for funds in Pakistan to easily be able to invest in that entity, right? And mm-hmm. so I would say those two things are really big. I would also say like, I'm sure that this was spoken about on a, on a past podcast for you is, is on the payments all together, like thinking, about the flow yeah. of money and and legislation around the payments gateway and the flow of money altogether needs to overall be improved because I think that is very much halting the innovation space. When we look at the fintech space right now, I would say that like the licensing and the license uh, requirements for people that operate in the financial technology space is one of the main reasons we're not seeing major, major breakthroughs mm-hmm. that are happening in fintech right now. So those would be probably my top four or five things that yeah. I would immediately say, please do this right now. And most of yeah. it resides with the state bank, um, the SECP as well. But like, and, and I will be fair to say that the state bank and the SECP are doing, you know, these like my, my MISPA, my partner is part of like, you know, a, a group that's talking to the S, the state bank. Uh, I said, our yeah. manager speaking to the SECP, FBR is a whole nother thing. That would be my other thing is yeah. get everybody in the same room so that we're not speaking to all these <laughs> because if FBR and S, um, SECP and state bank are not all speaking to each other, it doesn't matter that you're making these um, policy adjustments because if one is not changed, the others also will be impacted as well. So it's just, they all are fitting together. And I think unless we have all those three players in the same room talking to each other, I think that plays a very strong role as well in how we start to change the landscape. 
No, thank that, those are great points. And I, you know, as the czar, I would say you may want to tell the prime minister to have a retreat in the mountains, uh, <laughs> invite Raza Bakir, invite the finance minister, the FBR chair. I don't know who that is these if days. I ran my given vulnerability these, out. these guys, they would not know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe that might be first step number one to get everything else settled. And I hope like, you know, people, the prime minister maybe is listening or others are listening and that they heard your advice and act on it quick and fast because it is really important. That I mean, if, they, if they don't listen to it or if they do listen to it and are just like, oh, she's like an American spy, then that's fine too. Yes. Whatever. That's obviously. Yeah. Anytime people don't feel happy about what they hear, it's obviously like she's not patriotic or she's- You have an agenda. Some sort of agenda. <laughs> that's yes. when you know you've made it in Pakistan is when someone calls you yes. like a raw agent. <laughs> Yeah, right. It's like a badge of honor in Definitely. many ways. Like, yes, I, I have rubbed you in the wrong place bad enough for you to start calling me, not argue and debate with me, but calling me names. That's the way to talk. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, two last questions. The first, you know, this has been great, by the way. So thank, thank you for you. taking out no, the time. Um, you've been in this space for super long. You've seen founders come and go. You've seen many succeed, many not make it and not have what it, what it takes to make it. Um, but in Pakistan, I can speak from experience like, we aren't taught to be risk takers, right? You know, the typical path for a young person is become a lawyer, doctor, um, engineer, and have a good, you know, blue white collar job and you work in a bank or whatever. So it's very hard to convince yourself that you have what it takes to succeed and be an entrepreneur. So what would be your advice to young people who are listening, um, may have interesting ideas, may have some thoughts on how to disrupt Pakistan's market or solve key problems? Uh, what would you advise them on how should they go about, you know, taking that first step and being like, you know, you can do it um, and, and, and become an entrepreneur? Yeah. And I mean, I'm not of the school that everyone is meant to be an entrepreneur, right? There are people that don't have a huge risk appetite and maybe the best thing could be go work for a startup, right? There are so many, if, if you're someone that's thinking about doing something and you don't know how to do it and maybe you don't even have an idea yet. Um, sometimes the best school is going to work for a company that is growing really fast, right? Like go work for a Bikea or a Maka online or a Telotalk or, um, you know, an airlift. I mean, there are so many companies mm-hmm. that are growing really fast in Pakistan that are in some ways can be your best school for this. Because we know that the typical business schools in Pakistan don't teach you the best way, right? They're not teaching you in a hands-on way. It's still a lot of rote memorization. It's still very academic. And I think the best school- You can't debate with your professor. Yeah. That's one I've heard. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've had friends that, and I think IBA and LUMS have changed a lot. Um, And I think everyone's added entrepreneurship into, in some ways, into their curriculum. But um, I don't know how effective it still is. And I think, you know, I think for for young kids, what I'm telling them is like, go work for someone, you know, and and Mm -hmm. because- some what I've seen is that some of the best uh, employees, some of the best people that are now launching companies are people that were working at Green, that were working um, at, um, uh, they were working at Rocket Internet and got kind of the school of professionali- uh, professionalism in terms of just being able to work really fast and kind of get the skill set of and the values that are, are part of that startup culture, right? Which is like fail fast, mm-hmm. uh, you know, 
learn really quickly on the ground, like be flexible. All of those things are things that you learn by virtue of things being thrown at you and by being being thrown into the deep end. If you are young and you have an idea, my best advice is to just go out and test it, right? And I think there's a lot of privilege embedded in in people that tell you to just go start and like give up your job yeah. and like whatever. And I hate that advice. Like don't give up your job if you don't have the the bandwidth or the money or something to do it, right? So even if you want to start small, like be working at your full-time job, have a side hustle, right? And yeah, do something yeah. on the side, test it out. Maybe you can generate some money, generate legs. Um, freelance like o- freelance platforms like Odesk exist. You can do stuff. And I've seen so many people be able to build out an entire um, agency just from starting out on Odesk, right? And we've seen that actually in the ecosystem as a lot of people started as freelancers that then launched service companies that then started product-based companies. There's a lot mm-hmm. of paths that aren't your typical, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, Evan Spiegel stories. And that doesn't mean yeah. that you're not, that's not, that's not good for you. It means that you can like, you can build and learn and maybe your, maybe your first company won't be a success. Maybe your second company will be a success. Yeah. Maybe none of them will be a success, yeah. but that's okay because part of it's also learning. And so, yeah, I think too often we, in Fox then especially, we attach failure as an end. And, and ultimately it's, uh, by working in a startup or starting something and trying things, we learn that failure is actually part of a beautiful part of the process, actually, it yeah. means that you're learning and you're growing. And so I think, you know, starting to get yourself comfortable with that is really important. Yeah. And I think that's great advice. And when I speak with younger people, the way I try to tell them is that, you know, when you were think about when you learned how to ride a bike, Mm-hmm. Um, or learn how to swim, you probably couldn't do it. But if you failed and you said, I can't do it, you probably didn't learn, right? Yeah. But if you know how to ride a bike, odds are you learn from failure. And the same goes with anything in life. Um, and it's great advice that, you know, working for a startup, dipping your toes in is is probably the best way to go because you can figure out very quickly whether you have uh, what it takes or whether you're comfortable with the risk mm-hmm. and some people aren't. And I think there is also this myth, right, that you have to become an entrepreneur out of college or have this brilliant idea when you're 20. But in fact, the other day, I think I was looking at a stat that was uh, and I I, maybe I'm a bit off on it, but I think it was about 42 years is the average age of an entrepreneur um, when they start off. And so a lot of people do it later on in life. And so, you know, people often think that it's only the young who have what it takes to be successful entrepreneurs. And that's not really true. and to Either. be honest, as a fund, we probably, our average age is pretty relatively higher when we invest in our companies, yeah. right? And it's not because we're ageist ourselves, but we want to know that the founders, you know, they have the right experience. So it doesn't mean that we won't invest in like a 21-year-old whiz kid, but those stories are so few and far between. And I think that... Um, you know, I think that we so much, we glamorize entrepreneurship and we're doing that in Fox Sun as well, to be honest right now. And mm-hmm. It's really disheartening for me because I've seen so many people that are just, you know, very much like on the covers of our local, our local magazines and, and all of this stuff. And then if I was to look under the hood, there's nothing going on with our company. And it's, yeah. me, it's like, you know, we're selling, you know, we're, and it's great that we have shows like Idea Girl Ronka and we have like a new like reality show. Those are all great. I'm actually genuinely think that they're great. And I think Nabil with um, what he's doing there is, is awesome. But I also think that we're, we're still selling a vision of what entrepreneurship seems like, which is very glamorous. And that's not the reality. I think any one of us who are founders will be able to immediately say like the reality is like, I'm experiencing burnout, to be honest, right now. I sleep on 
plane, 14 hour plane ride. That's where I get my sleep before I run into a, like a meeting right off a flight. Like that mm -hmm. is your life. Like that is what you do. And that's what you have to give yourself. You occupy economy class seats next to you. And <laughs> so that you can lie down for a 14 hour <laughs> flight. I was like, yes, nobody take my, nobody, <laughs> nobody else take this row. Um, but I mean, that's, that's what you do. And that's what you, you have to give yourself over for. Right. And you're doing it in service to a larger vision that you're creating. And I think for anyone to sell something that's that's different than that or that is more more of a glamorous version than that, we're doing a disservice to young founders when we mm -hmm. aren't telling them the truth. And the truth is that it is a very, very hard road and you have to be 150% passionate and sure that you want to do it. Um, otherwise, you will not survive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Last question then uh, before you wrap things up. What are two or three books that you would recommend people pick up and read that you read in the recent past or read some time ago and you think those were like life-changing books that you picked up and read? Uh, about entrepreneurship or about anything? Either, just whatever. Yeah, whatever um, you think is relevant. I read so much, so many books that have nothing to do with entrepreneurship, but I listen to a lot. That's of good though. I guess that's how you stay sane because that's how I stay sane I, sometimes is I don't yeah. read about books about economics. Yeah, no. And I feel like actually the best part is when you're, for me, like, a, like I ultimately believe that we're all creatives fundamentally. And so I think I get my best ideas when I'm reading something that has nothing to do with um, what I do. So one of my favorite books from 20, I would say 2017 actually now was uh, Tara Westover's book, Educated. Um, I thought it mm. was amazing um, and so well, beautifully told. I would really highly recommend that. Um, I loved Trevor Noah's Born a Crime. It was so good. Um, mm -hmm. And then in terms of business books, uh, books that I'm reading right now, everyone talks about The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz, but I'm reading his newest book right now, um, which is What You Do Is Who You Are. And it's really about being a value-driven leader and about really creating culture by really how you behave and not just like ping pong tables mm. in, a, in a workspace. Um, and then I'm also reading, I'm just looking at my books at my table right now um <laughs> i'm reading for the love of men which is about masculinity in today's world um by liz plank and i'm really loving Ooh. that right now um yeah those are probably my my top books right now i loved loved um home going by yag yassi um that was a, a story about um about like basically being African-American through generations by starting out and in, in going into slavery from West Africa. And that was beautiful. Yeah. And so, so yeah, I read a ton and most of the books I read don't have anything to do with what I do, but they end up inspiring me in some ways when it comes to leadership or when I think about what I do. Yeah. And I think that's very, that's a great point, right? That you don't have to read books from your own field to be inspired, to grow as a person, to have creativity or figure out new ways to be better at what you do, whatever it might be, if you're an entrepreneur or otherwise. So great recommendations, great conversation. Thank you for taking out the time. And we're, I think we're going to have you on again, hopefully when the policymakers listen to your advice and maybe <laughs> called you on a retreat in, in the mountains and you were able to get uh, the common sense policies uh, uh, passed, but great work with eye to eye and, thank you know, you. keep, keep at it. And thank you for joining us. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for tuning in for this episode of Pakistanomy. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. If you like this podcast, please do subscribe to it using your favorite podcast app and do share it with your friends and family, as well as on your social media. Hope you tune in next time.